You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of silence. When it comes to the American church, 2020 was a pivotal and also trying year. Depending on how you looked at it, it could have been the year when your church shut down, it closed its doors, it stopped singing, and it gave in to the pressure of the world. Or it could have been the year in which you saw adversity as an opportunity. You could, like our next guest, Michael Foster, lean into the difficulty and become a lightning rod for people to gather and start fighting. In this episode, we'll talk to Michael Foster from It's Good to Be a Man. He's got a book coming out with Non-Tenant that'll be published through Canon Press, I think sometime in the spring. And you can also follow Michael on Twitter at ThisIsFoster. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show, and I hope it encourages you in 2021 to start leaning in. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. My name is Eric Kahn, and today we have a very, very special guest. We have Michael Foster from It's Good to Be a Man. Michael, how are you doing today? Good. New, uh, new year, new me, right? <laughs> new year, new me. That's right. Michael, we have a very important conversation. First and foremost, I asked you what would be a good topic for conversation. You said Brad Pitt chewing food. So I just have to know, why is Brad Pitt chewing food? I actually watched a video on this some years ago that apparently when you've got something in your hand, you're doing, I forget, I think Robert Redford does this too. And there's like this whole theory that Brad Pitt is Robert Redford's secret son. And what? if you watch, look at them, they look like each other, they act like each other, they move like each other. But apparently Robert Redford does this and it is actually something that actors do. But I was watching Moneyball last night which is one of my favorite movies. And uh, it's a big joke in the Ocean series that he's always got something in his hand, but he does it even in Moneyball. And I was like, man, Brad Pitt does this in a ton of his movies. So yeah, I was thinking, meditating, reflecting, processing. (laughs) What is this about? I think it's a power move. It's a man move. And speaking of which, Michael, you've been dealing with the manosphere You've been dealing with masculine issues for some time. Um, I'm curious when exactly you got into that and, and why. Sure. Well, sexuality generally as a topic has been an interest for me since about my freshman year of school. I took a sociology class and uh, was it sociology? Yeah, it was sociology. And it had this, uh, the textbook had a picture of a bodybuilder in it, black, big, thick um, oiled up black bodybuilder and they had shown it to a tribe over in Africa and they said man that is a big woman <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> and uh, and I thought it was fascinating just uh, their view of they, they looked at it as they thought man that's a really crazy looking woman and uh, they saw it as vanity they saw it as just not masculine actually so I thought that was interesting. And at the same time, I I started reading a lot of the early church fathers and they were dealing with a lot of Gnostics. So the issue of matter and body and physicality comes up uh, quite a bit in their writings. Justin, the martyr dealt with um, it quite a bit, but really all they did. So I, I, that was, got me topic broadly. And then uh, that continued to kind of, um, morph and develop to where I was really focused on fatherhood uh, as I was married and, and starting to have a family and realized that I didn't know what I was doing. So I got deep into all those books and discovered Doug Wilson and read Reforming Marriage and Future Men. Then down the line, I noticed that a lot of um, kind of uh, mid-30s and down uh, guys were having a real hard time finding a wife, having a real hard time uh, in, the, in the dating culture, even the courtship culture, if you're kind of in that little niche of the reform world. Right. Um, so I was like, man, what's going on with these guys? And so some of these guys had 
deficiencies that you could understand would keep them from getting married or would at least be a hurdle that they have to get over. But some of them are impressive men, you know, tall, good degrees, handsome, well-spoken. Some of them know how to dance. Some of them knew like they had just like a lot of skills to play the guitar or whatever. These are things that uh, guys can use to sweep a woman off her, her feet. And yet they were having a real hard time, uh, getting married and some of the women that they would pursue and would eventually break it off or not date them. I would look at them and I'm thinking like, look, you know, you're pretty, I guess, or pretty enough, but you're not all that. This guy is actually way above you. (laughs) Like (laughs) you, you, you should get him to put a ring on it and lock this down before he realizes where he's at. But they didn't, and the guys didn't realize it, so I started researching. Back then, I worked part-time in the ministry, so I was able to listen to hours of lectures on YouTube. You know, like, I listened to all Jordan Peterson's stuff, which I didn't really know too much about him. A pastor friend had told me about him, but I just didn't really care. But then all these young guys were like, oh, Jordan Peterson's great. He's helping me. I'm like, okay, let's see what this is about. So I listened to his lectures, and anyone that's listened to them, you're like, well, this is a mixed bag. It's Jungian arco- uh, psychology, uh, dualism, basically, with a weird veneer of Christianity. And then I found myself listening to the anti-feminists. Karen Strawn was one of those. And then there's guys like, uh, oh, I forget his name, Paul Elam. Paul Elam. He's right. a, kind of a men's activist. And, uh, and he's, he figures prominently in the movie Red Pill by KCJ or whatever her name is. Um, so I, I got deeper and deeper into this world, listened to this stuff, found out about the pickup artists. I was aware of pickup artistry. I you know, heard that, that word thrown around. It was kind of a big deal in the late 90s going into the 2000s. It, played it, uh, it made its way into kind of mainstream culture through movies and books. Uh, so I started watching all these videos and kind of taking it in, trying to figure out why all these young men are being helped more by pagan pickup artists and men's activists and crazy anti-feminist chicks than by pastors. Right. And that's how I got deeply involved into the manosphere. Yeah. And it's interesting, Michael, because, you know, you've interfaced with a lot of voices. Um, you've interfaced with people like George Bruno uh, 21 conference. You spoke there this last year. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me, though, is if you so if you compare like your trajectory and your involvement with the manosphere um, and all these issues of masculinity, and then you compare it to kind of what's happening with a lot of boomer pastors who are really popular, say in the 90s and 2000s. We can kind of think of like a, a Tim Keller, a very prominent ministry for a long time. A lot of people in the church, men especially, are starting to say okay, those guys really, there's an issue here. It's kind of like talking to my grandfather. Like he knew the issues 20 years ago, uh, but people are needing information, help, and counsel about particular issues. And I think one of the reasons that you've done well, I think one of the reasons it's good to be a man does well, um, is because you're able to understand the moment. So if, if, you know, for those who who don't know, uh, Michael and I, I met Michael, I don't know, what, two years ago, something like a year ago. Um, and as Michael and I talked, like, I was like, Michael really gets the moment. So I want to know, Michael, like, is that something that you intentionally cultivate? Um, and, and what separates that, right? Because some guys don't get that, and they're not paying attention to those issues with men. Uh, but you certainly are. Is it, is it a conscious thing for you? Uh, there's probably a couple levels to that answer. So in the world of marketing, you've got early adopters, early majority, late majority, and then laggards. Um, I've worked in marketing and sales a good portion of my life. And, uh, and I would always fall into the earliest of the early majority on where things are going. Um, I'm not the early adopter, but I'm friends with early adopters. And I, you know, I was friends with the guys that were getting into all the ideas in the four hour work week before it blew up. So I knew about it and I knew about the concepts and I, I wasn't really doing it myself, but I was conversant with it because I just kind of have a lot of friends that are um, fringe risk takers. 
And uh, if you're a fringe risk taker, you're kind of like Babe Ruth. Lots of strikeouts, lots of home runs, right? Right. And so I do think some of it is an aspect of my personality, my temperament, things that I've just kind of been into that I tend to uh, get into things earlier than most people. And uh, I was like one of the first people to have an iPhone. And I'm not a, I wasn't an Apple junkie. I won it at a casino. <laughs> That's how I got it. <laughs> long story there. But um, <clears throat> so there's that. Then uh, I think it is cultivated now where I try to listen to people carefully and determine if, if there's something I'm missing. Where I think with a lot of the older pastors, there's a tendency to have this sort of boilerplate way of dealing with things where they just kind of write off the complaints or the issues the kids are bringing, bringing up. And for example, uh, I tweeted out, like, here's how you do a phone call. Because I found that a lot of millennials have a lot of anxiety over making phone calls, which to me is crazy. But if you think about it, my kids, they didn't have, we didn't have a phone in our house right. until a couple months ago. We just had me and Emily's cell phones. And so my kids don't know about the phone etiquette. Uh, thank you for calling. This is the Fosters. How can I help you? <laughs> you know, right. they, they don't, they pick up the phone. It's like some gangster, like who this, <laughs> you know, what do you want? You know, or, or some of my kids just pick it up and, and sit there. Like they answer and they don't say anything like, Hey, you got to let them know. And it's because they never grew up with phones. And right. so millennials, they, they had phones, but they had a different relationship with them. And so people are like, well, grow up, man. You should just know how to make a phone call. Like, well, yeah, they should, but they don't. So you have to decide, is this because they're just an idiot? Or is there something real going on there? And what right. I think it is, is that there's, if you think of it like a tsunami, so a tsunami uh, rushes in and... And then when it goes back out, it, it uh, drags a lot of things with it. And then it often come back in again. And that can happen over and over again with a tsunami. And so we've had these series of cultural tsunamis that have washed over and they've dragged things out to sea with them. And that's happened over and over again. And what, what a lot of folks don't understand is the things that you think are common sense that you just got – actually were transmitted to you via culture, via the men in your life, um, the, the sort of culture that we had in the schools back then or just in general. And those, those things which were transmitted and culturated into you are gone. They were right. pulled out to sea. And now this is happening over and over again. We're even, you know, I'm 40 years old. Um, and so I'm not a boomer at all. And there's things that I saw that boomers just can't see. Right. Like you'll hear boomers talk about this is like the sort of uh, stereotypical like, well, when I was a kid, I would just work the summer and I paid my way through college. Yeah, dude, you're it costs eight hundred to maybe two thousand dollars for you per semester. If that like that right. is, that's that's book costs nowadays. OK, like, you know, eight hundred dollars in books a semester. That's you're doing all right. Actually, that's not too bad. And so they're just kind of detached. Like, no, you can't do that anymore due to inflation of, uh, of uh, your tuition and all that. So, but, so they can't see things like that. But there's things that are even like when I heard the whole phone call thing, I was like, oh, come on, guys. But, but that's how boomers were towards kids not knowing how to have eye contact or shake hands. And so we're right. watching huge portions of culture disappear and it's tied right. obviously to men failing to step up and their and fathers being under attack in the culture the breakdown of not just a nuclear family which is really a new idea but the breakdown of the extended family and the church being unwilling to uh, step in in the right way i think so that's that's what's been going on and i think as a person who's trying, a first-generation Christian who's trying to establish a household and uh, in a legacy uh, that glorifies God, you know, I, I'm having to learn these things and fight myself. So I, there is a sensitivity in me that um, I think uh, allows me to see some of these things, or at least consider the possibility. Maybe these guys just aren't bitching. Maybe they're telling the truth. You know? Yeah, I think it's a phenomenal point, and, and I think a big part of it is. Um, if you grew up 
without a father presence, a strong father presence, as many in our generation have, there really is a reality where when, when, and we've talked about this, you've talked about this a lot. When somebody says man up, you actually have no idea what that means. So maybe for a boomer who had a strong father, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But when they say things like man up and they think that is just going to fix the problem, I think I then look at that and I say, okay, well, yeah, but I actually don't know what that means. And there's a lot of people in our generation that don't, they just don't even have a clue. You've called them clueless bastards. Many of us uh, identify with that. So my question is, Michael, if you're, if you're one of these boomer pastors, and that's been kind of your mantra to, to just man up, what would you tell that guy? And, and maybe some of them are saying, okay, this is a problem I need to, somehow I need to get new eyes on this issue. Uh, what are some things that they can do to start addressing those issues and, and seeing them? Yeah, one thing you should tell them is like, look, you mean well, but you are a Nike commercial, right? <laughs> Nike commercials right. don't make athletes. You don't tell people to just do it. All those high-performance athletes you see, they've been coached, right? If you, if you do any sport, you actually break down all your movements um, to little steps when you're learning how to throw a punch, Right. Uh, you don't, you don't want to have a shotgun jab that just shoots out from your shoulder. You want to make sure that your hips are turning right, that you're, you've got the right um, twist on your punch. So all the power shoots from your back leg up through your hips and through your, you, so you learn when you're, when I first started boxing, the first thing you do when you come to the boxing gym is uh, you, you want to hit the bags, but you don't get to. <laughs> you eventually will, they'll teach you how to jab. But what you'll do is you'll have this, basically it's like a um, T shape. And you, you step frontwards with your front foot, and then you bring your back foot. And then you step backwards with your back foot, and then you bring your front foot. Then you step left with your left foot, then you bring your right, and right with your right foot, then you bring your left. That's good footwork because a lot of boxing is where you cross your legs and you fall. So the first thing you do when you're learning the box is this annoying footwork practice. You're like, dude, right. just let me get in there. But that's foundational, and they're building a boxer. And to build a boxer, you break things down, and you coach them through it, and then you do it a bunch of times so you don't even think about it. Nowadays, when I, if, if, if I spar with my kids or whatever, my footwork is still follows that basic training I received many, many, many years ago. And so what these guys need to realize is that uh, you are an annoying Nike commercial. You're not a coach. <laughs> right. And, and is, is that what you want to be? Right. And of course, if they, if they fear God and love men, no, they don't want that. They just need to, you need to open their eyes. And a lot of these guys will say, you're right. That's right. And then you have to say like, look, you grew up in a culture where all these things, these common sense things were taught. So now um, when a guy won't look you in the eye, uh, say, Hey, I notice you have a, uh, issues with maintaining eye contact and that's going to cost you with ladies in the respect of men. Um, I love you. I'm for you, man. Uh, you really need to practice like maintaining eye contact. When we talk, you can look away or whatever, but you need to work at that. Also, you, you just do little things like that. And it makes a big difference in people's lives because posture, eye contact, how hard you shake someone's hand, all these things are confidence. Right. And, and they lead to men uh, actually having confidence when they take action on something. Like, I will get this Bible plan done this year. Right. right? I can lead this woman. I can overcome these problems in, in my family with my children. I can do this because God made me a man, and, and men are made to do this. I can do this because like it's like a screwdriver can turn a screw because that's its design. This isn't about uh, some cheap – self-esteem nonsense. This is about realizing what you are, what God right. designed you to be. And so I think teaching men those sort of things, giving these little practical tips. Someone came, um, someone came to my church this past Sunday from a, we'll just say a, a really sophisticated church, okay? And a church which I respect. And they said that they were refreshed by my preaching because it was so simple. And... <laughs> And that's on purpose. You know, I right. try to channel Ryle and Watson when I preach and I throw in some like little interesting things there. But I know um, our biggest problem is that 
we don't take action on these basic foundational things. Like I was talking to someone in Tyrannus Hall, which is our online men's group, and they were talking about social hierarchy and why, if there's any good books on it. And I was like, like well, yeah, go look at the, um, the larger catechism's exposition of the fifth commandment if you want to understand the concept of superiors, inferiors, and equals. Right. Um, that's probably where I would go. Well, yeah, th- that's true. Those are good. Are there other books? And I'm thinking like, you know what, man? How many books do we need on a subject? <laughs> like, why do you, and it's fine if you're into it, but right. most of what we're really doing a lot of times, we're asking for more books, more articles. Uh, we're trying to kick the can out on taking action, right? Right. It's paralysis analysis. So I, what I think pastors need to realize is, you know, I actually tell people like, you don't need another book, man. Like, here's like three things. Go do these three things and and work at that and then we'll when you establish that we'll come back and we'll build on it and so it's the mr miyagi sort of idea that right. um that irritates guys at some level like you know daniel sons like mr miyagi i'm sick of painting this fence and you know wax on wax on <laughs> but you know you don't have to be all mysterious about it that's annoying as well but just no these are basic things that you got to do man and right. <clears throat> And this, I think that's what I would tell those pastors. Don't be a Nike commercial. Be more of a coach. Well, pastors aren't life coach. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. Not in some stupid way. But are we, we are teaching people what's got, what, what God has uh, revealed in his word and how to apply it into your life. That is very similar to what a coach does. Matter of fact, coaches are like the last reservoir of manliness in our country. It's like the last place where you can scream at a guy and he'll thank you for it and react to it. (laughs) Right. And so I think, uh, and the reason why a coach can do that is that you guys are on the same mission with, be the best you can be excellent. Don't be mediocre. Right. And so the reason that's different than like a pastor that kind of barks the man up stuff is that number one is that the coach is actually coaching them. And, but he also is, he's a hundred percent for them and they're working towards the same goal, which is a winning season championship, right? Whatever. Um, and so I think actually pastors maybe adopt more of that and you'll see your guys take off. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned the coaching example. I was thinking of uh, one of my sons playing basketball the last year, but then one of the one of the men in the church who was actually the coach of the team. Like I remember several times he would grab my son and he would he would just be chewing him out on the sideline, and you know it was funny because all the kids loved that coach, and it ultimately what he would do is he would chew you out and he'd put his arm around you and he'd be like, "I love you." Now we need to win, and this is how we need to do it. You need to get your head in the game. And all that to say, I think to your point, I think pastors have to realize you're a father in the church. You've got fatherless kids, young men in your church. Uh, Many of them are older too, by the way, and still are unfathered. So you're probably going to have to fulfill a lot of that role, and you're going to have to teach men how to be men. It also makes me wonder, Michael, as you've watched sort of the manosphere as you've watched these trends in masculinity from the time you got into the time where we are now, what, what do you see that the massive shifts, like what's changed? I think there is to be, so uh, Aaron Wren, who is an acquaintance of ours, we, we both like Aaron and he was talking about almost like the manosphere is dead. And, uh, and while I like a lot of the stuff that comes out of Theopolis there, I thought their manosphere series was really bad. Um, it was not good. And, and, and I could tell it was mostly written by outsiders and I'm actually deeply, deeply involved in, I know a lot of the top influencers as, as their friends or at the very least acquaintances. Um, George Bruno and I are really good friends. Um, so I don't think the manosphere is dying. I don't know what you're talking about. I think it's actually maturing and growing. And, and now you're seeing more and more online communities, more podcasts like our podcast. Like one of my goals with it's good to be a man 
was to inspire other people to do it better. Because my whole attitude the whole time, like everyone's like, you can't grow a podcast if you don't do it every week. And I'm like, well, then I guess that my podcast won't grow, right? Like, <laughs> right. you know, like, here's what I can do. Here's the time I have. Here's how I can get to it. Now, Nan, have I, Nan and I have gotten much more disciplined and, and intentional and we're and that's changed where our podcast is uh, where we used to just not post one for three months. I didn't care. I was like, whatever, you know, <laughs> right. I, I got a wife and kids, man. Like I'm like, I'm not in this for fame. I'm just trying to help. And I thought, man, if this, if this gets other people, someone else comes to builds on what I'm doing or does it better. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm in it for the movement. I'm in it to, to, to press things and to get other people uh, to do, to do it, you know? And so that's what I see happening. That's the shift. I see people waking up to these ideas and you've had like Zach Garris on here. Zach's right. book is, is good. And you see a lot of that happening right now. And I see some guys, I see guys that blatantly rip me off, but I'm like, whatever. <laughs> like, I still don't kind of, I really don't care. Um, there's so much to do and, and everyone has their sort of different ways to present things and temperaments and gifts and skills right. that they bring to it that puts it a different spin. And like in sales, um, sometimes you're talking to someone and trying to sell something and it's just not working out. So you say, hey, I actually got to step away for a moment. Um, I'm going to have my, my friend come over here and finish this out. Well, what you're doing is like, man, my personality grates on this person for whatever reason. Right. So I'm going to bring this other person in and then uh, they'll, they'll do better. And so me and my friend, Jill, we worked the sales floor together. Jill and I were bad cop, good cop, and we would try to figure out which cop we're supposed to be and we would work people. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. We just would. That's what you do in right. sales. And so it's like that in the manosphere is that there's all these different voices, kind of different um, perspectives and spins and age groups and that are, that are coming up. And I think that's a, a huge uh, that's a huge shift in a good thing on, on the whole. And it's, and people are like, I have to explain that the manosphere will never die as long as there are uh, men that are lacking masculine skills for whatever reason and the internet with guys that want to help them. <laughs> right. They might want to help them because they want to get money from them. There's a lot of grifters in this space selling their, you know, their 20 page PDF for like 50 bucks. You know, you always see them on Twitter. Like uh, it's, I'm, I'm cutting my $50 book down to $40 for the next, <laughs> the next 40 books. And then they're like 40, 39, 38. There's like a cut uh, countdown on their tweets because <laughs> it's really manipulative, right? It's making it more right. exclusive. It's, it's creating the sense of scarcity, which is what they would be against. They would say, no, you shouldn't have a scarcity. You should have an abundance mindset. My, you know, but, uh, yeah, so I think, exactly. I think it's, it's growing and it's, it's maturing. And, uh, I think, um, I think I have a lot of hope for the 20 somethings, especially the younger ones. Uh, the millennials have definitely have been, kind of raped culturally speaking right and they may be on the whole lost generation yeah and it seems like there's something different going on with the zoomers uh i have a lot of those guys who will follow the podcast and it's like I, i'm kind of blown away at times like gosh i wish i was 20 and thinking like you are already there's definitely something going on there right yeah i think they they saw they're more mature um, with social media. They saw, I mean, number one is that Facebook, as soon as grandma's on it and your uncle's <laughs> on there, like posting <laughs> boomer memes and talking about QAnon and all these different conspiracies, it's not very cool at all. It's no. like the iPhone, the iPhone was cool until, until your mom got one, you know? And, <laughs> and so I think the things that we, you know, we all, um, we didn't ease our way into unlimited text, really. We didn't really ease our way into social media. We kind of dived in. Right. And consumed a lot of our, our, um, our time and changed the nature of our relationships. And, and we were the um, Frankenstein's monster, you know. Uh, really, that's what the millennials are, all these changes. And now the younger groups, the Zoomers or whatever you want to call them, they've actually – seeing social media and the social media culture and all that. So they, I think they just have a little bit more of a mature 
uh, understanding of social media that we all were figuring out through our 20s and 30s. And they, they have it already. I think that's a big part of it. Um, I also think that uh, there's more, we've taken more steps to protect people from pornography in our homes where our, sure. you know, it's, it's crazy to think um, how hard it used to be to get pornography. But now it's just at the end of your fingertips and uh, high def free pornography, whenever you want it on your phone. And a lot of us weren't prepared for that in the way it is. And not that it's not hurting zoomers, but they now have parents that actually understand filters and understand that like a Hudson right. has a phone, my, my 14 year old and I got him a phone by gab wireless. So it's, a, it's like a, it's a smartphone without any internet browsers or apps on it. So you can't get them on it, but you take pictures, you can do multimedia messaging, you know, you've got like a GPS or whatever. You get all these things on there. And, um, and so, well, and, and no uh, doubt those conversations are happening now, like with, with the generation where I, I feel like, I don't know, I don't know if this was the same for you, but you know, we started out on AOL dial up and then it progressed to like, here kids, here's the internet, have fun. And it was sort of like giving your kid a couple lines of Coke and hoping things turn out. All right. You know, there was no explanation of here are the dangers. Here's, you know, even today, like pornography, you mentioned this, but I'm noticing like secular movements against pornography. It's not, it's not even just Christians. It's people societally recognizing this is a problem. The no fat movement was a a big part of that. That started probably, I, I don't know, five or six years ago, at least. Right. And, and those guys, um, and it's because it's super destructive. You can't get things done. It causes erectile dysfunction. Um, it removes uh, your desire. It misplaces your desire. And these guys um, realized that, and they saw the negative results. So, yeah, I agree. I think there is um, a, a huge movement to respond to these things. Now, I'm not saying it's, things are really dangerous. Um, they're really dangerous right now, but there's just people realize that and, and some of the dangers weren't realized early on with the sure. millennials. Sure. Well, the other thing, Michael, that, um, you know, it, it strikes me as we're talking about these issues. Um, and one thing I've noticed about you, um, not only are you good at reading the moment, um, understanding the times that we're living in, but you've also taken an approach of really leaning in. So what I mean is if you look at, 2020, for example, there were a lot of people that were doing the chicken little thing and they were saying, oh my gosh, we need to close our churches. We need to hunker down. We need to, you know, essentially just wait and see what happens. And you were like gung ho, like, no, we're, this is our moment, right? This is an opportunity. So I want to ask you about that in particular, just cultivating this aspect of your personality where you're saying, no, I'm going to lean into these difficult times. It's going to be a you know, the adversity is going to be an area of opportunity for me. And then I want to tie that to just the, the church and the moment we're in uh, as a church culture. Why do you think so many people are not leaning in? So why are you leaning in and why are people not? I'm leaning in because, uh, because we have to, to survive. Like we're under attack. Uh, that's one thing like this year, the, the reality of um, the reality that we're under, we're in a cultural war and we have more or less lost. And now right. we have to regroup. Now, I don't want to go the whole Rod Dreher um, way where I think he's more passive than I am. But to continue a boxing analogy, uh, when you're in a boxing match, a lot of times you got to get off the ropes to a position where you can defend yourself. And the church has been getting brutalized on the ropes. And so you've got to spin off the ropes and get somewhere where you can actually uh, land some punches and mount some sort of offense. And Right. So part of that leaning in is to get off the ropes to say, okay, this is a real big problem. Uh, we are, our churches are being ravaged by critical theory, uh, by egalitarianism. It turns out that a lot of the guys that are in the pulpits are careerist pastors that have very little skills that translate 
outside of a sort of corporate church model. And right. so they have to protect their jobs and they're doing that because they love their wife and kids. I'm sure. I mean, it's, but they still vocationally have to pr- protect and not take, take risks that will threaten the loss of their job. Um, and so you're realizing like, yeah, these guys, a lot of these guys are like that. And some of them are just evil hacks. you know some are really evil people and they're they're hungry for influence and power and this is a time to to press back on that when that becomes really clear and when the best way to deal with bullies is to bloody their nose you know you can't reason with bullies there's no reasoning you can try but i i so for me 2020 was like man there are bullies everywhere yeah, and we are really outnumbered, and we don't have good good positioning. So now, like, you gotta like lean in, push them off you, so you can get your positioning, and we can mount some sort of uh, offense. You know, some sort of spiritual warfare, cultural warfare, is what we're we're involved in. And why do people not do that? I think because uh, it's a mixture of things. One is that they have to unplug out of the mainstream media. I mean that, I mean CNN, Fox, all that, but also Gospel Coalition. Right. Um, a lot of these websites that uh, are, have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo and slowly liberalizing, which is what's, you know, the Gospel Coalition, you go back, I actually got blocked in the Gospel Coalition like a decade ago. A decade ago? You were way ahead of your time. Yeah. I think it might have been 2009. I can't remember. But um, anyhow, when it started, though, it was pretty good. It was all right. It always has had kind of an antinomian flavor to it. But it's it's gotten increasingly, increasingly liberal. And what pastors, I think, don't realize a lot of them that won't engage on social media is that their people are reading these blogs and following these people on Twitter. And even the good pastors are having their entire church liberalized by the, the church media. And that's one reason you've got to get on Twitter It's part. It's like, it's the um, people it's propaganda. You have to fight back. You have to have a voice there. And these guys uh, don't seem to realize what we're into because um, Everyone in mainstream media has a narrative that they're pushing that, look, it's not as bad. These are crazy conspiracy theorists, and that's radical. That's, that's a nutty fundamentalist. Calm down. Peace, peace. Everything's okay. Uh, when, no, <laughs> the house is on fire. It's on fire. Well, and, and Michael, you bring up a good point because um, – you know, I'll, I'll even mention things. Um, I mentioned things from the pulpit, like, um, you know, this is what's being said, just giving people, cause they're reading it anyway and connecting uh, scripture to all of life, which includes social media. Um, and, and it's a great point because people are there, right? Our people are there. They're reading the gospel coalition. They're talking about desiring God, but man, I talked to so many people. I've been in the boat myself where if you're tweeting these things, like it's not long before the elder of your church calls you and is like, hey, we need to talk. Um, on the flip side of that, you have a lot of guys, I think right now, foolishly retreating from social media. Like, well, we're getting off Facebook. We're getting off Twitter. Um, we're going to go hang out in parlor with, you know, four other people that believe what we believe. Now there's strategy in each of these positions, but what I, I've tried to encourage people is don't just abandon Twitter. The reason that I think you and I have, and, and a lot of other guys too, um, have sort of been a lightning rod for some people is because we were willing to go there and be like, no, feminism sucks. And just stand there and, and sort of rally the troops. So I don't think it's wise. I don't know your thoughts on this, but certainly not for pastors just to retreat totally from social media. or the other side of it is go on social media and just be terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think uh, we just, the church has to have a, a presence 
where the conversation's happening and the conversation's happening online. You know, there's like 4 billion people are active social media users in this world. That's almost half the world are actively on some form of social media. Right. And so wherever the conversation is happening, where minds are being shaped, you, you want to have a say in, in being involved. I used to always joke that I thought Facebook was the matrix, right? Where you got to see real people, yeah. you know, because everyone's like, that's where people are fake. And I'm like, uh, what? that's where they're real about their idols and the things they want. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> the, interesting. You can learn a lot by someone's Facebook or you, who, they, who they envision themselves to be, who they'd like to be. Um, so I think, yeah, you can't retreat from social media at all. I, I'm, I have a parlor account. I hate it. It's clunky. It's weird. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not. Everything is Dan Bongino for some reason. Yeah, he owns it, right? Right. Um, um, but I, I, uh, I'm okay with getting canceled, uh, but I'm, I'm going to make them cancel me. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, canceled. Yeah, I'm not going to give up. Why give up now? We're still in it. You know, uh, well, and you, maybe they'll Michael, read two, section 230. Maybe they'll repeal it at some point and they right? won't be able to do it. Who knows? Let's, I'm going to wait to the last moment and see what happens. Yeah, and it, it's crazy because you, you were one of the early people. I think I was sort of like trending down this, like, I'm just going to go live in the desert and not be on social media. And, um, you know, I don't know whether a year and a half ago, maybe something you were like, dude, you have like 200 followers. They're all like your mom and her friends. You need to like be active on Twitter. And I was like, I don't know. So I started doing that and it was crazy. It was like the amount of networking. I, I would even just say for that alone, the amount of networking with other like-minded people who then we could turn that into phone calls and actually get to know people. Um, it's incredibly valuable. It's not just a, it's not just a throwaway thing. Your right. network is your net worth, right? That's um, it's rule number one. Uh, that was uh, Iggy Pop, I think, said that. <laughs> I don't know who said it, but I'll tell you this much. The value in going to an elite university is not the education it's as networking. much as the network, the, the doors that it opens for you. And this Twitter in particular is an interesting place because it's where you can connect with the movers and shakers. Nobody can talk to them and yeah. you can interact with people. And also it, it's Twitter makes, uh, keeps you from being Elijah. Oh, it's only me. Actually, no, man, there's a lot of guys out there that are like-minded trying to accomplish the same thing. And you meet these people and it's super encouraging. And yeah. I also say that it only has to stay online if, if you let it. I meet with these people in real life all the time. They show up to my church. I go out, they, they're passing through Cincinnati. Hey man, passing through Cincinnati. You want to go grab uh, a drink or something? And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do it and talk to them. And then I, I, now I know about all these good churches out there. I would have never known about. And if someone says, Hey, do you know a church in this place? You know, so a lot of times right. I don't cause it's a big country, but then sometimes I'm like, actually I do know someone in that little, uh, little part of Michigan. Let me, let me connect you. And, I think the key is, is it's a, it's a lead generator for relationships. Oh, absolutely. And then you have to be willing to take your online network offline. You have to be willing to take it into yeah. the real world, so to speak. Um, and, and that is how, and this is why are, if, if social media doesn't matter, why are they so scared of it? Why are the liberals so scared of it? Why is gospel coalition? Why is gospel coalition? always complaining about blogs, you know, and, and Driscoll, remember Driscoll, he always had a authority problem, right? He wanted right. everyone to submit to his authority. He <laughs> would always go on and on about the bloggers criticizing him. He, he it made him really mad. And it's because through blogs and social media, people are given a platform and a pulpit to speak. Now, a lot of times that does really, really bad, but it does create a sort of level of uh, checks and balances. And so clearly, uh, blogs, social media, Twitter, whatever, you know, I got on TikTok for a moment. I was like, I just can't do this. <laughs> That's for someone else. That's someone else. Someone else can uh, use the uh, Chinese spyware to, to preach the gospel. But I, it, right. it wasn't for me, man. Um, 
But th these are very powerful platforms that we can use to network. And, and the thing is, guys, guys that are on there do want to meet in real life. They do want to be part of a real world community. And if we can use this to light that fire, get the moving, push them to connect with people um, at a local church um, to, to and, and I think we're going to have a mass migration in the next five years in our country. I think we're going to see a lot of people move to be closer right. to um, uh, better governmental situations, but also better ecclesiastical situations. Uh, this is make that's going to make this possible for people to know like, Hey, that's, there's actually a really good church that I could go be part of. And so I think it's, it's huge. The other reason why pastors don't use it is because they're cowards and it turns to conflict real quick. And most pastors don't want to be involved in conflict or there's um, older men really struggle with social media. Um, I, my dad my dad, even when I love my dad, but when I see him get on Facebook or on Twitter, I'm always scared what he's going to say. <laughs> Just painful. And, yeah, it is. You see like these 50-year-old dudes that are manly or 60-year-old guys that are manly in normal life and they act like complete sissy girls online. Um, right. It, or they'll share really strange memes. You're like, what in the world? You know, and like little cat memes or I don't know. It's just, they don't, they don't understand that world. Right. And so maybe those pastors shouldn't be on that, but some of your up and coming guys that understand how to use it, uh, maybe they, that's who you lean on. Well, I think you're right. Uh, one of the issues is just the avoidance of conflict. I think if you are the managerial type of pastor, that's kind of what you're doing is like, look, look I'm just here to keep everybody happy. So I don't, I'm not going to wade into any territory that is controversial. The problem is then the church just becomes pretty much like corporate America uh, where they're, you know, just avoidance of conflict. It's a bad way to do pastoral ministry. Well, I think it's interesting, Michael, too, because there's, a, I think there's a connection here between, okay, social media can be fake, right? We've seen how it can be a, a place for posers, the influencers, I think even the New Yorker had an article on that recently. But on the flip side, as you and I talk about all the time, we're talking about in this segment as well, you can take those things, you can make real relationships. That's something that you're doing. Um, you're planning a church. It is also something I think that is, it's risky to a certain extent, right? Because here you are, Michael Foster, you're this personality online. But now you're going to interface with people at the church level. It's also where you see real change happen. So I want to ask you about your church, what you're doing, how's that going, and why is it important for you to take, you know, Twitter principles, if you will, but then actually go do something with them? Yeah, so it has been really interesting. Uh, people, people think... Here's what I always tell folks is that no one is as bad as you think they are online and no one is as amazing as you think they are, right? right. Like the guys that you think is villains, you know, maybe take J.D. Greer. Like that guy's terrible, right? But I bet if we met in real life, we could probably have a pretty decent conversation and you would see the way he treated his wife or his kids and you say, okay, like. Yeah, he's wrong theologically. He's dragging the SBC down. But, you know, I always tell people even Hitler pet uh, his cat, right? <laughs> you know, um, and, and, no, but also. I never thought of that, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> now you know that uh, uh, file that one away. But, um, but also, a lot of folks, it's amazing how they decide you're this hero. Right. They make you into a hero. You're like, look. And we have a lot of people that follow me online that want to move and be part of what we're doing, Batavia. And I have to have this like sit down with them. Um, these uh, talk to them on the phone, like, look, I don't know what you're imagining. Let me lay lay it out for you. And uh, our church is not the masculinity church. You know, I preach I preach on that when it comes up in the text, when it's in the um, foreground. 
And we operate in a way that I think men would love to be part of our church, just as women do as well. Um, but we, we don't want to be one thing. So for me, Twitter is uh, it's, it's particularly uh, focused on marriage, sex, and family. That's like what my Twitter is about for the right. most part. Um, <clears throat> and I don't want people coming to our church thinking that's all the church is about because it's not. It, there's a ton of things. There's the whole counsel of God. Um, so part of it, when people come to your church and they know you from online, you have to lower their expectations. And I've gotten in a habit of bringing people's expectations down and purposely under promising everything. Um, Which is a good I, principle. I mean, in general, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. If you come uh, to our church, you'll find actually people from all walks of life. Uh, not everyone there is reformed. Very few people are going to be uh, involved in these kind of nuanced discussions that happen in the reform world. You know, the reform world is Aspergian, is what I tell people. They're just like, they're <laughs> yeah. just, I remember this kid I knew that was autistic or had Asperger's. Like he knew every single covered bridge there was in America. And he could tell you where they were at and all these details about each of them. And you're like, that's amazing. And that's because his brain developed in such a way that it's just obsessed on one issue. And that's how it seems like when you're talking to people in the reform world is that they're so precise and obsessed with all these things. But when you dig into their life, that what you find is that they only have a theoretical knowledge and they lack a practical mastery. Sure. <laughs> and so part of what we're trying to do in our church is it, it really encourages people to take actions to not just be hearers of the word, hearers of sermons, hearers of YouTube lectures, hearers of podcasts, but doers like take action. And so things are going really well. We, we focus, um, I go verse by verse through scripture, starting in Philippians on a Sunday. So uh, how to have joy and confidence and, tri and trials. That's what that book's all about. It's about uh, maintaining the um, love and unity of the church. And uh, that's all we're doing, man. Like do a few things, do them well, be consistent and God blesses it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the other things, Michael, is that I think, you know, we were talking about this before, but churches closing their doors um, is an opportunity. Um, churches going soft on the political, cultural issues, the masks, all that stuff. Um, I know you've seen a lot of interest in the church simply because of this. So if you are a pastor who's going to lean in, uh, it seems like there's a real opportunity um, that people are looking. I know, I know even in our area, people show up all the time uh, because their church is closed. And they say, we're tired of it. Uh, we just, we just, basically, we just want somewhere to gather with God's people. Um, it seems like there's going to be an exodus and an opportunity for church planners. Um, is that sort of what you've seen with, with what you're doing in Batavia? Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I think our church could be 200 people by the end of this year, which is nuts. Really? Um, yeah, I don't think that's um, – I'm not cocky or proud of that. I'm scared of that. <laughs> You know, right. I'm, I'm scrambling to react and, and put things in place and, and make sure that we do a good job of, of um, shepherding the flock of God. So it, it's a dicey issue as a church planner because you never want to undermine other elders in your local community. You want to be aligned with them. And I had someone that uh, walked me through why she was visiting us. We actually meet in the evenings right now, why she was visiting. And she told me her elder's position and I totally disagreed, and I thought they were um, overstepping their authority. I did, but I, I was very careful in how I talked to her because it needs to be about the principles underneath the mask and not the mask themselves per se, right? Right. And, and you also, if these people have been faithful to take care of you for years or whatever, you need to work through and then come to the place where you say, look, these are principles that we differ on. I love you. I'm, I'm thankful for your ministry, but now we're at a place where we can't see eye to eye and I don't see these things going away in 2021. And, um, and, you know, membership is a voluntary association. So and I'm not in a discipline and, and I, I'm thankful for you. I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else. Right. And so we, right. I've actually had people come and I've sat down and talked to them and, and, strongly exhorted them to go try to work it out with their pastors, even with pastors that I don't agree with. I just think they're, it's insane 
some of these things. And I do think they're uh, uh, abusing their authority by um, not having a proper understanding of the limits of their authority. You know, right. there's things that, uh, that you ought not do. And, and that's the real issue. Now that you know your pastors and your government think they can mandate whatever they want and you have to submit to it. Uh, it, it so basically, if it's not explicitly, um, it's like the normative principle. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, a normative a, past, it's a normative principle of pastoral care. Unless right? the scripture forbids it, we are allowed to command you to do it. <laughs> right. You know, and, that, and I'm more of a regulative principle guy in that area. So I'm like, no, we kind of need to stay in our lane, and we need to um, exhort the, the magistrate to stay in their lane and exhort um, the uh, house, heads of households to stay in their lane, and we all overlap, and it, is, it gets messy at times. But that's – that has to be our attitude. And so our position, I said it last Sunday. I almost cut it from the sermon before I put it online. I was like, should this go online? Oh, what am I doing? <laughs> but then I said, I was, at the end of our sermon, which is on unity, I was just like, look, our position on the mass is simple. We leave it to the discretion of the individual. We'll have mass here. We'll have hand sanitizer here for you if you want to use it. If you're uncomfortable, um, we'll do our best to make a way for you to come and be part of this. And that's our position. That's it. We're not going – we're going to leave it to the discretion of the individual. We're not going to enforce it, bottom line. Um, that's not my job. I'm not the mask police. Right. You know, if, if the health department wants to come down and try to do something, they, they can, I guess. You know, But we're, we're not going to do it because it is a real barrier to – incarnated worship and people right. can try to like have these real new nuanced arguments and get deep into it. But look, just go, go to a church where no one's wearing masks, singing loudly, shaking hands, smiling and loving. That's so much better than wearing oh. your mask and being so far away. And let's be, what are we talking about? There are no bodies in, in the street. Stop being drudge report. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, what are we talking about? It's not a pandemic, man. It's a weird flu. It's a weird flu that's real dangerous for some small group of people. There's all sorts of illnesses like that in the world. Right. And, and so some of it's just like not, again, that's the mainstream, mainstream media, not buying into it. Just like, no, this is not real. And the thing is, think of the IRS, Think of our income tax. That wasn't supposed to stay. Right. And what you know with governments is once they realize um, that, that they can take something, they'll continue to do it. It's just like your kids. Oh, yeah. Right? It's just like your kids. What, um, what you tolerate is what you're going to get. And, and we're, if we tolerate these guys mandating stupid things, they're going to continue to mandate stupid things. And people are like, oh, so are you against uh, uh, seatbelts? Well, look, guys, this seatbelts was one of those things we tolerated. There's a bunch of things we tolerated that probably uh, we shouldn't have. And now, it's, now they're getting into our, our churches and they're telling us when we can worship and how we're supposed to worship and whether or not we can serve the sacraments. And they need to back off. They need to check themselves. Right. And if you don't check them, if you don't check them, it's going to get worse. And 2021 is this conflict is going nowhere. It 2020 was the beginning. 2020 was like a five on the Richter scale, right? We're going to be approaching seven, eight, nine this year. It's going to get intense, especially if um, if all the conspiracy theorists are wrong and Trump doesn't pull off some sort of miracle here in a couple of days on January 6th. Um, we're going to be dealing with uh, clueless Biden and Kamala Harris and Democrats. It's going to get intense. And this is where it's like, okay, steal yourself, men, right? Rise up men of the West. There may, day, may come a day where they break all, you know, break our bonds of fellowship. You, you, like maybe you should memorize Aragon's speech at uh, the black <laughs> gates, but it's not going to be today. There may be a day where you stop us from gathering, but it's not going to be this Sunday. Right? right, we will push you back, and once these people realize that we can't be messed with, you know, it's like uh, serial killers and robbers. They will always say that they don't go to a house, even if it has a little dog. 
There's a little barking dog. Well, it's because it's one other thing they have to deal with. Yeah, they're, they're going to pick a soft target. And if you yeah. represent yourself or present yourself as a hard target, people are going to be deterred. So a little, a little barking dog can, can save your life, right? So just start pushing back. Just start saying, no, we're not going to do that. Um, sir, I think you should wear a mask. I appreciate your concern. I'm not going to do that. Um, I, I would, it would, I would feel more comfortable if you would stop wearing yours, you know, unless you're not. <laughs> yeah. Some people should probably have a mask. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think the pushback, um, is important. And I think as, as you've shown, a lot of people have shown, if you're willing to do that and be courageous right now, people will rally to you. Um, it leads me to my last question, Michael, which is related to all this, but what do you see happening in 2021 for men, for the church? What are going to, you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you think are going to be the big issues um, election-wise? You kind of hinted at some of this stuff, but, but where do you see it playing out? I think the big, the big thing that's going to happen in uh, 2021 is all the corporations are going to try to force us to take this vaccine. It's, um, it's not going to be the government as much as it is corporations that say, hey, to continue to work here, you're going to have to take this vaccine. And then if you say, hey, I have a, relig a religious exemption, they're going to be required by law to try to accommodate you. So um, keep you at home, remote work or whatever. And, um, but I think you're going to see a lot of people lose their jobs if they don't take the vaccine. And then they don't have... Um, then we've watched our small businesses be decimated. Oh, destroyed. And so who else will hire someone with vaccine um, exemptions other than small businesses, right? So uh, it's going to be a rough year for people. And you're going to have to actually work through your principles. And here's what I really think happened in 2020. I think there was a lot of men that were reformed on paper, but they've never been put into a position where they actually had to uh, live out their principles. And I, don't, I think a lot of reformed pastors hadn't thought mm. through the relationship between the civil magistrate and the church, especially if they're of a reformed Baptist persuasion where that's not that part of their theology is underdeveloped or, or just wrong. Um, <clears throat> so I think that in 2020, they're scrambling. You watched a lot of churches like kind of go back and forth, like we're open, we're closed. We're going to do this way. Or you got to register. No, you don't have to register. They just kept bouncing because they were reacting. It wasn't driven by principle. Well, those guys are going to retire <laughs> or if they can retire in 2021, they're going to, their churches are going to shrink or they're going to uh, completely capitulate to the culture and they're going to lose a huge amount of, the, of their base membership. And those members are going to go elsewhere. So you're going to see mass migration out of um, industries. You're going to see mass migration from this state to that state, this region, that you're going to see mass migration and movement from one church to another. So right. 2021 is going to be a year where things start to shift in a massive way. That's what's ahead of us. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to start small businesses. You know, you're going to have to be wise, but anytime the market's uh, disrupted, there's always great opportunities. We're going through a massive market disruption. And so I think guys need to open up their eyes and where's an opportunity to start a side hustle or to start a real uh, small business. I think there's a lot of opportunities to plant a church, but I think you need to be smart because the thing is, uh, I've been a hiring manager on and off my whole life. And if you come into the interview and you complain about your former uh, employer too much, I just will, I'll like not hired. Like you could have all the best attributes, but if you come in there as a malcontent, I just assume that that's what you're going to say about my company in months or years. And right. so if you got malcontents coming into your church, um, you want to be careful. You don't want to, you can't build a, uh, a church in the back of malcontents. What I'm actually seeing is people coming to my church that are absolutely broken what's happened to their church. Right. And they're hoping it'll turn around. They'll come to their senses. And um, so they're not malcontents. They, they disagree on print uh, at a principal level with their, their other church. So I think those folks will say, you know what? Uh, the Pandora's box, man, I've, I've seen who you are. 
and I can't do this, we disagree, and those folks are going to move. So that's 2021 is a year of church planning, a year of starting businesses, a year of shifting around. I would tell everyone um, to hunker down, to to read up on these issues more, think through how you can move towards um, anti-fragility. How, how can you diversify your income resources? Uh, do you have a, a real community around you, people you can lean on, people that will have your back? Um, those are things that we have to start thinking through and what's going to be a um, really a life-defining year, you know. If you ever saw uh, the Christmas Tsunami, I forget the name of the movie. Uh, there's a really good movie. It's heartbreaking. Oh, Sharknado? <laughs> not Sharknado. There's another one. I'll think of it later. I'll tweet it at you. Okay. But, um, so the tsunami happens and the real dangerous part after the tsunami is there's just everything's broken down and there's electricity everywhere and dead bodies and cuts and mud. Right. That's kind of 2021 at some level. This is like after the initial Blast. And now we have to learn how to navigate this. And you, you just need a community of wise men around you. So I, that's step number one is find a good church with wise Christian men so you can start to navigate the many difficult decisions that we'll all be faced with. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great word. Well, Michael, I really appreciate the conversation. It's been phenomenal um, as expected. Uh, for people to find you and find your work, find what you're doing now, obviously they can go to It's Good to Be a Man. Anything else that you're doing right now that you would point people to? Yeah, I posted on Parlor six months ago, so you can go find me on Parlor. <laughs> which I Thank believe. you. That, that's very, very helpful. <laughs> I think it's Michael Foster even on Parlor. You don't so even you, know your handle. That's how bad it you, is. You know you're like real early if you have a common name like me and you actually get your normal name. John Smith. Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm on Twitter. This is Foster. Um, and uh, if you ever want to join us for worship, uh, Batavia, Ohio, you look up eastriverchurch.org. And uh, anyway, encourage to be on this podcast. Keep doing it, Eric. Absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Michael Foster, and I hope you're prepared to better lean in in 2021. As always, we give a special shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. This really would not be possible without you. We're podcasting, we're writing a book, producing a field manual for men, and a bunch of other things. Really appreciate your support into the new year. As always, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.